We're in chapter 21, and we are uh, in the sixth paragraph. Why don't we go ahead and pray? Father, thank you that we can gather this way. We know there are lots of folks who are on their way right now, and we'll be getting here, be getting here soon. But uh, we ask you to give them safe trips and help us as we endeavor to understand what the Westminster Divines uh, we're, we're trying to say and uh, to teach us. In Christ's name, amen. Okie dokie. So, as I noted, we're in chapter 21. This has to do with worship and the Sabbath day. And um, we're in paragraph 6. Neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel, either tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed. But God is to be worshipped everywhere, in spirit and in truth, as in private families, daily and in secret, each one by himself, so more solemnly in the public assemblies which are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected or forsaken when God by his word or providence calleth thereunto. Okay, so naturally the backdrop for this is the temple and the sacrifices that were performed in the temple and the pilgrimages that were made to the temple. And what this is intended to demonstrate were sort of... Um, work out for us is that there is now a new temple. It's kind of implicit here. The new temple is the church. We are the temple of the living stones. Um, but there's also implicit in this, I think, a kind of a natural tendency that human beings have to, to sort of um, revere or maybe note that certain places are kind of special. Now, that can be okay. Um, have you got any places that you think about as being kind of special and important in your life? Places maybe you, as a kid or even as an adult, kind of look at and say, man, that's just a different place. Whenever I go there, it takes me back or something like that. Anything like that? Yeah, I think, I think we all do have those kinds of things. Uh, and it's not necessarily idolatrous to, to, to have those feelings for a particular place. Like, if, let's say you were converted somewhere. That is kind of a special place to you. Right, you know that's where something special in your life happened, and you go back there and you're reminded of it and that kind of thing. But does that mean that you can only talk to God in that spot? That's, I think, what the Westminster divines are saying. No, no, this is not. We're not saying that that just because there are certain places that are important to us that those are the only places we can worship. So I think there's the background of the of the temple and how the church is now the temple and fulfills what the temple was always pointing to, but at the same time the human tendency to think about, you know, special places in life that you've, you've been, you know, for one reason or another, think of as special. Any thoughts on any of that? So it's pretty, pretty straightforward. Is, is this not one of those controversial ones? Now, what do, you, what do you do with, say, setting apart something? So let's think about how we treat uh, special places. 
So, um, you know, there's a sense that when you're in, say, a church, there's a certain decorum that should be observed, right? Um, and that decorum is a good thing, right? I mean, we don't like um, just behave like we do in other places when we're in certain settings or dress in certain ways in other, in other settings. Like if I, if I showed up in my bathrobe, <laughs> I was like, hey, you know, God is love. And totally accepting, you know. There's no, there's no there, you know, what are you guys all uptight about? You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Would you think that's okay? Probably not. Probably not. So there is a sense in which there is a, an appropriate kind of cultural decorum that we should observe, um, you know, when we're in certain settings. Like if we were to go to the White House um, and visit the president. I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. There was a kind of a, a kind of a, I remember it was, kind of went viral uh, during Obama's presidency. There were some young women who went to, to see the president and they were in flip-flops. And everybody was just sort of like uh, outraged. This was not an appropriate kind of footwear to wear in the presence of the President of the United States. Now, maybe you don't have any problems with flip-flops. But on a scale of uh, dignity, where would a flip-flops land? Way at the top, okay. <laughs> so, but this kind of gets us into some interesting discussions related to culture, right? Like, um, I was watching a film here just the other day, and I'm not recommending it. I'm just noting it. Sometimes people, when I mention a film, they'll say, everybody's got to watch it now. It's like pastors endorsed it. I'm just saying it was a, I saw it. And in this film, uh, at the very end, Clint Eastwood is a character who, is, who dies. And to demonstrate their respect, uh, some, a Cambodian family dresses up in full, sort of like culturally appropriate attire, to demonstrate their respect for him. Huge headdress, lots of, you know, sort of flashy things sparkling around, kind of a gown that, you know, it's just, it's certainly not American. <laughs> not something you see every day. But it clearly demonstrated some respect for him. You see what I'm getting at? So there can be different things that kind of come into play uh, when it comes to this. But does that mean you can't pray in your flip-flops? No. Disciples did. <laughs> they, actually, they weren't flip-flops. I've seen those sandals. They were tied down. <laughs> yeah, David. Was, was that the tension? I haven't seen the Jack, uh, Jack Smith. Uh, Chuck Smith, sorry. The, you know, the tension where he... Oh, you mean with the uh, Jesus? Yeah, like the, you know, the hippies Jesus. wanted to come into the church. And yeah. uh, I heard years ago that, you know, the people in the church were kind of looked at as the kaji people because the norm was, you know, to dress up for church. And these guys were just coming in. And uh, I think it might have been Chuck Smith, who was the pastor, and he wanted the people to come in. Right. And people were saying, well, they're sitting on our carpet. And right. he says, and they tear off the carpet. You know? So there was this, there is this, this, like this threading of a needle where the person is obviously, you know, the person I guess you're trying to reach or something is, is, is very important. But the, also the tradition, and like you're talking about, the decorum is, is 
important. So the, I, I, I remember reading this or hearing it and the tension that can happen. Yeah, it's not an easy one to work out. And I'm kind of drawing a parallel between this and that. So this is aren't, these aren't perfectly uh, sort of this similar phenomena. But it's worth kind of thinking about. So, for example, when it comes to worship, um, there's a set of things that we ask people to do, or direct them to do. It's time to stand, right? Time to sit. And those kind of reflect different sort of dispositions. So sometimes you'll hear somebody, in honor of God's word, let's all stand, right? And so there's something about that. It's like coming to attention. You know, like, okay, this is important. Um, like, uh, who was it was the Hallelujah Chorus in, who was, who was the king uh, when that was first performed, Handel's Messiah? I can't remember, but it, the tradition was when the Hallelujah Chorus begins, you stand ever since because the very first time it was performed, the king was so impressed he stood and the entire assembly stood with him. I can't remember the king, but Handel uh, was the court um, composer. That's why we have that particular tradition. So now if you, if you like or insist, I'm going to sit down, I'm not going to stand for It'd almost be like a statement, right? It's almost like you're defying. Well, you think about like kneeling for the national anthem, something like that, refusing to take your hat off when it's time to pray. There are lots of things that are normal things. Well, you know, so you can say with, the, with Scripture, you know, you can say the hat thing as, it's, as a biblical uh, command, you know, men pray with their heads uncovered. So take off your hats. I remember I, I was at a, a big gathering. It was an interdenominational event. We were in a, in a black church, and the, the pastor was very, um, this black pastor was very uh, sort of committed to everybody making sure their hats were off. And there were guys who were going around, you know, take your hat off, taking hats off of people when it came time to pray. So, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily uh, uh, something that's just, uh, dis- we can dismiss. Just sort of like, oh, that's just a bunch of uptight people. You know, kneeling, get on your, you know, take off your shoes for you are on holy ground. You know, there are lots of things in Scripture that we can point to and say there are th- behaviors, ways to do things that demonstrate respect, honor, and so forth. Back to the flip-flop thing, um, in all seriousness. When I became a Christian, it was at Calvary Chapel Huntington Beach at a Calvary Chapel. I mean, it was a little chapel. And um, I doubt there was one person with dress shoes in that chapel. Uh, When I went to church on Sunday mornings, there were some families... You know, dads, they would dress up. and think, But most of us were just got out of the ocean. That was kind of, I guess what I'm getting at is kind of, there is some kind of cultural, cultural relevance. Like in Africa, they wear lots of colorful clothes and jump around, and that's totally legitimate. So, I mean, here... But, it, but the interesting thing is sometimes when we look at... Uh, cultures in other parts of the world, we're not very attuned to certain distinctions. So I want to talk about that myth, but go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I mean, I just, that's, what happened with my experience was we dressed up. (laughs) 
wear your nicer flip flops. <laughs> and you yeah, wear, there's, there's, wear there's shorts a, that were um, like an O'Neill shorts with some plaid or something nice and a, and a t-shirt with like kind of like what I'm doing here, you know. Um, yeah, and, I, and I think I think those are great points, but I think one of the other things too is that sometimes you don't really have an appreciation for even the decorum of a, of another culture. So, for example, I I've pastored people from all over the world, and sometimes you can be really surprised at how rigid cultures that we assume are not are. So I remember uh, performing a wedding for uh, uh, a family from Malawi. So. The, the, this particular family is the Banda family. Now, if you know anything about the history of Malawi, that name should ring a bell. The dictator, Banda. This was the royal family. <laughs> so they were super straight. Super straight. So, like, I remember one time, Albert, Albert was actually a child of a diplomat, and he, uh, he had some pretty strong opinions about how you would behave in church and stuff like that. And then, when it came to the wedding, uh, there were a couple of things as an American you just like were like totally surprised about. Like when it came time for the kiss, the tribal cheer. You're like, what's going on with this? <laughs> and then at the at the at the at the reception, there was the dance, and it was the tribal dance. And here's Albert just kind of chugging down, you know, just doing all this stuff. Then <laughs> it's like it was a total transformation. He's like totally straight. I mean, literally a banker, and then doing the tribal dance down the aisle with his wife. <laughs> They're just a lot of fun. But I, I saw that again and again with people from Pakistan, people from India, different parts of the world. So there's a so sometimes I think when we think about like non-Western cultures, we have this, this idea it's totally loose. There's no like you know sort of set of expected things. It's not that way. In fact, they can be very critical of Americans. I remember, did I ever tell you about the Ethiopian PhD I, had a friend, I was friends with? We, one time we went out to lunch, and he's a Harvard, Harvard PhD, and we we're just at lunch, and he was also a pastor, Ethiopian pastor. And uh, he was telling me about his, his concerns for his kids because they were being Americanized. So all the disciplines were breaking down. And he said, I had this, I was disciplining my kids, and my, one of my kids said, you can't make me do things. This is America. <laughs> Literally. That, and, and his response was, America ends at that door. <laughs> this is Ethiopia. <laughs> kind of an interesting kind of dynamic, isn't it? <laughs> but anyway, getting to our, our, this is about whether or not uh, a particular place is the only place that you can worship. Yep. I was thinking about in my years of being in church and seeing, I grew up in the culture that he grew up in, but I've heard it said that when somebody comes to Christ, be it a stripper or a prostitute or a gang member or whatever, there's something to be said for grace. And I mean, they're, if they've never grown up in this I call this a culture. Yeah. They're not going to know. Yeah. Maybe you should leave your gun at home. Yeah. Or yeah. We we have to exercise wisdom, patience, and also understanding, and and then also kind of like say, yeah, this is not as important as this. And well, I think it's it's wisdom. You know, one of the tr tricky things about wisdom is it's not like a list of do's and don'ts. 
you have to exercise some judgment in the situation. Also, the importance of mentoring, yeah, coming mentor. around people and having them in our homes. And even though that might be super uncomfortable for us, but just showing them without giving them a list of do's and don'ts at first. Yeah, and, and then there are all sorts of things, too, that demonstrate respect uh, that are really culturally relevant or relative. Um, like, uh, so we had a Pakistani family in our church in Cambridge, and we had a bunch of interns who we had brought in to learn about urban ministry, and we wanted to connect them to families. And I went to Leela, Leela Sirkar, this very dignified uh, Pakistani woman. I mean, she's kind of severe. You know, you just like, you just watched yourself when you were around her. <laughs> and um, I said, hey, Leela, would you, your family be willing to uh, you know, sponsor one of these uh, interns and kind of pray for them and have them over to your house in the summer. She said, no! Said, really? And I said, why? We did that once. Said, okay, what happened? They didn't like my food. <laughs> Huge insult. Huge insult. So she, didn't want, she, she was insulted because she had, you know, demonstrated hospitality and, you know, in that culture, you just... You ask for seconds and thirds and burp and just you know, all that kind of stuff. So I, I got the, the young, young man that I asked to be, I said, give it one more try. So there was this young man named Brian Chase, and he was about, he had a stomach that was like a, like a, like a bottomless pit. And I said, you know, Brian, uh, this is the way it's going to work. When, you, when, they, when they pile the food on your plate, you clean the plate. I don't care what it is. It could be eyeballs. I don't know. I just, <laughs> you, you clean the plate. And you asked for seconds. Yeah. And uh, he did. And he actually enjoyed the food. And she was just so taken with him. She, she, he was like her son, her adopted son. <laughs> That's right. That's right, Jennifer. Well, I, when I came to Canada in 1991, I was surprised there is a culture difference between here and there. You don't speak to people in grocery lineups. And you don't show up at people's homes unless you make appointments and play dates. You don't. It's like it's very British, and it's and it was like shock to me because I was like, oh, I would always like talk to people, and my kids would make mock me and drop lineups <laughs> until they came to the U.S. Right. <laughs> so now you might again wondering how does this relate to the other thing? Well, a lot of this stuff uh, is is it does um, overlap when we talk about okay. How do we demonstrate our reverence to God? You know, how do we conduct ourselves? Are we in a particular setting in which that's being done? Is worship being, um, you know, uh, performed, if that's the right word, in this particular place at this particular time? How should we? And if and one of the tough things is how do we know when we cross that line? You know, sometimes it works the reverse. I remember, you know, I think one of the things about American sort of. Um, Youth culture, it's just more or less colonized the church now. It's, it's actually gone in reverse. So what happened is back in the 60s and 70s, people would say, I had this really genuine experience singing Kumbaya at the fire with the Lord. Right? We need to do that every Sunday. We need to have like Kumbaya time all the time, where it was just, we we're going to just be totally relaxed, totally casual, not uh, any pretense or anything like that. And now, you know, it's hard to find churches like ours. You go out and it's mostly 
basically what a youth camp was like 30 years ago, except on Sunday morning. That's in the, in the, I think it's Paul talks about eating baby food. It's time to start eating meat. You can put well, that yeah, stuff it, away. Now, he's talking about something different. He's talking about this, the content of the teaching. But I'm just talking about kind of the forms. But that's the same thing. When you show up, when you're first believer off the beach and you're in flip-flops, for some, you need to buy some dress shoes someday. Well, I, true. I mean, yeah, I mean, so I'm, 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 I'm trying to be as latitudinarian on the subject as I can. Uh, but I'm, what I'm, I guess what I'm getting at is that this particular matter of a particular place and a particular time and particular conduct are things this, that are kind of kind of connected to it. Yeah. Uh, do you do you think that um, so so there's this, there's this verse in Leviticus too that um, has always kind of stuck out to me. It talks about not withholding the salt of the covenant of your Lord in your sacrifices. Right. Basically saying when you when you bring the, that loaf of bread to offer as a sacrifice, it better be salted. Right. Um, which I think maybe that speaks to some of the heart issue. Right. Like when you've gotten to the point where would you serve salted, unsalted bread, right, bland food to your family or guests, but you're, when, if, if you're in the place in your heart or mind where you're like, oh, this is, this is just going to be burned on the altar, why waste the salt, right? You're, you're now putting it lower. You're taking this, or, or, or trying to find an excuse in your heart to... Well, it's an offer less than yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's connected to like the unblemished or the blemished sacrifice, you know. So yeah, I mean, if you're gonna, if you're not gonna use that animal for breeding purposes anyway, might as well sacrifice it. Well, is that really the best of your flock then? You know, the I'm not sure I can draw a direct line to flip flops or anything, but you know, the reverence <laughs> with which you approach, the reverence with which you approach, yeah. Um, and it can be reflected, should be reflected. Yeah. And the thing we're dealing with is that even though we don't have, and we're going to get to this in a minute, we, even though we don't have uh, a particular place that we've said is the exclusive place, uh, we do say that there is a day that we have set aside for this. So you know, when we think about time and space, there are two, there are two things that can be sanctified. Space can be sanctified and, and time can be sanctified. Set apart. You know what I mean is by set up. You know something has been set apart for a particular th- purpose, and the the thing that's being said here is that the location is not, you know, just one place, or it's not like we're uh, like think about Lourdes in France, where healings are believed to occur. You know, people, you know, work really hard to get to Lourdes because that's where it happens. You know, if you're a person who believes that healings can only happen in one place, I got to get to that place because that's where the healings happen. Uh, this challenges that. This is to say, no, God uh, can be worshiped everywhere. Implicit, I think, in that is God can heal everywhere, right? Um, any, any other thoughts on that? I know I've spilled over into lots of different subjects. Thanks for the flip flop thing. <laughs> <laughs> when I said that we wore different flip-flops on Sunday at night. And we were cleaned up. And a lot of us quit surfing in the mornings. Because the people at this Calvary Chapel, most of them, took this the Lord's name seriously. 
And it wasn't serious, like what we're not dressed the way they are. They're dressed differently, but the, it's going to be a really nice Hawaiian shirt and some shorts. Um, well, what I'm getting at is there was a difference. That's something in the set apart. There was a setting apart, and there was a, a distinction in terms of if you live in Hawaii, you're usually not going to dress Presbyterian in church. Well, it's an interesting thing you bring that up because the early missionaries to Hawaii did make the local folks dress in Western clothes. Well, that's why they kicked them out. Yeah, so, there's, so there, there have been, you know, this is again where, where we have to be wise. We have to be, you know, sort of understanding how things work in this particular culture. Uh, I think the main thing is, is that in every culture there, is, there are distinctions made between ways. So like when Western uh, explorers would arrive uh, in an environment where they had, you know, they were meeting some uh, native or indigenous group, they would know who the king was right away. There was not, there was no mystery. It's the guy with the big hat. <laughs> in other words, there was, there was something that signaled this person is set apart, this person is different, this, this is a person that you're supposed to respect and honor, that kind of thing. When I moved to San Diego, I became what we know as Reformed Presbyterian. I didn't wear my flip flops anymore in church. I, I have here a few times, I admit it. <laughs> but what I did as I really got into the whole dress up and tried to, I don't know. Was that like an OPC? What? Was that an OPC? Yeah. Sure. Sure, living church. <laughs> no, but I mean, I guess there is a sense of respect to the other, I guess, or respect to the elder or respect to the church in the context of where you're going. Oh, yeah. And again, getting back to, you know, cultures, I've had such a rich experience with so many. And um, in many of these cultures, there's a far greater uh, deference to authority. Um, it's a lot easier for elders to do their work with people from Malawi, for example. Basically, okay, the elder told me this is something I'm supposed to do. I'm going to do it. It was just very straightforward. I think it's one of the reasons why Presbyterianism has really flourished in certain places, like Korea, uh, because the pattern eldership is a is a universal pattern. It's you see it in different you know different cultures all around the world. There are certain older men who have responsibilities for the community, and that's what the scripture says needs to be the case in churches. Okay, well, let's look, let's look at the, the next one, number seven. Um, as it is the law of nature that in general a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God, semicolon, I want to stop there. Notice where, he be, where they begin. They begin with the law of nature, that worship is something that needs to be performed and that there needs to be time set apart for it. That they're not pointing to any... Now, they'll justify this by Scripture by pointing to Romans 1, right? But, both, but they're saying that this is something that's a law of nature. Let's think about that term, law of nature. When you hear the, the word law of nature... I know we've gone over this before, but you can't go over it too much because we've, we're so far away from the way people used to think. When you hear law of nature, what comes to mind? Uh, where the Bible says, well... I'm just thinking broadly. Physical, physical laws. Yeah, yeah, physical law. Gravity. Gravity. Yes. Order. 
Yeah. Order comes to mind. Yeah, well, order, but uh, I think for most people, they just think about me mechanical laws of nature. You're special. Because <laughs> mo most, people, most people just think law that in that way. So they, they think of it's just sort of, or they think about, you know, sort of survival of the fittest. That's where you were going to go, right? It's a law of nature. It's red and tooth and claw. It's violent. You know, strong survive. They adapted to their environment. You know, the lion, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, that's the law of nature for many people. But that's not what they're saying. They're saying something closer to what Leanne just said. It's just that this is kind of in the order of things. Isn't that interesting? You know, I, I noted that that's actually what the Founding Fathers said in the opening paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. They appealed to the law of nature, that people have a right to, to self-governance based on the law of nature. And then they tag on, and nature's God. You know? But this is, I just, I think it's worth noting that there's a kind, what is that, doesn't that imply there's kind of an instinct that we have, or kind of a, a sort of a natural propensity for this? or? when we're healthy anyway. So in his word, by a positive moral and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages. So what we have is positive law and natural law. This is an important distinction. Positive law means what? Something that God says. Yeah. Now, natural law is also something God said, but we're talking about in a sort of historic, written down instance or case. So like the, the Ten Commandments are positive law. Now, there's a tendency in some circles to think that's the only law, that if it's not positive law, it's not law at all. So uh, the uh, history of the United States, there was a significant sign of transition in our jurisprudence. In the 19th century, it was more or less understood that there are natural, there's, there's a natural law. But uh, in... I think it was uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes was the, was the justice who formally repudiated in one of his decisions the argument for natural law and said only positive law, which implies what? Not necessarily the Ten Commandments. It means our laws are the only thing that matter, the, th the laws we make up. So positive law is the law that is created by uh, legislatures uh, and enforced by executives. But if there's a natural law, then that law can be called into question. In other words, what's more, got more authority, human positive law or God's natural law? God's natural law has more authority. Now, does God have a positive law? Of course. That's what we see in Scripture. So, you know, when you go into the, into the Supreme Court, I've never been there personally, but I'm told the Ten Commandments are right there on the bench. Listed right there, positive law, God's law written down. Now, the relationship between the, the natural law and the positive law is an important thing to think through, and sometimes uh, we don't, or we just don't it, sort of see a connection. But Calvin is famous for having said that God's positive law is just the natural law written down. So the idea here is that this is not like God uh, abrogating or, or overturning the natural law with the positive law. The positive law is put into place because we need it. Because why? Yeah, because well, you know, we have a tendency to, 
to need that extra reminder. <laughs> right. Sounds like I wear the flip <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, you you're the one who came to that conclusion. <laughs> so anyway, see see so I, I this is an important thing because there might be somebody out there who says, you know, uh, worship is just a culturally uh, created thing. This is just a, you know something that uh, is a is a contrivance or a culturally constructed thing. No, what the what the what the Westminster divines are saying is that Scripture teaches us paradoxically that this is a natural thing. This is like from the beginning, we have this. Uh, this duty, this natural duty to worship God. But then it's reinforced with the commandment binding all men in all ages so nobody gets away from it. He hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him. So, of course, we're thinking about the seventh day of the week. And this is a relevant matter to consider because we're going to get to what follows here. Which from the beginning of the world... uh, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week. And from the resurrection of Christ has changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day. And it is be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. Now, we more or less take for granted that Sunday is the Sabbath. But that obviously is not taken for granted by Jews. <laughs> they, they, uh, they, they think it's Saturday. But I remember as a kid, I thought of like the weekend as like you know, Saturday and Sunday. So I didn't think of Sunday as the first day of the week. Were you like me when I was a kid? Yeah, I was like, what? How come Sunday's on the first part of the week? <laughs> I was like, no, it's at the end. We get two days off, you know? Any, any thoughts on that? I think it. I think it. The fact that I was raised Presbyterian, that I didn't have any problems going to the church. Well, I'm glad to know it. Glad to know it. And I think that. So one of the things about being Presbyterian is we are known as Sabbatarians, which means we take the Sabbath seriously, and we believe that the commandment to honor the, you know, the Sabbath day hasn't been abrogated. Just, you know, it's like all the days are the same, you know. And my father was very strict, and he said, Molly, if you don't sit still, I'm not going to take the church. And I just... And then he said, great, and you wiggle around. I won't talk. Good, good. You're a better kid than I was. Well, you, you bring up an interesting point, because, you know, when you're growing up, um, you do get those two days off, and life begins on Monday. Yeah. But when you grow up in the Catholic Church or even the Lutheran Church, they would have Saturday evening services. Okay. And they would, I, they would, I think the thought was kind of like the Jewish mindset is that the Sabbath begins that evening. Okay. So, um, so I just wanted to know, coming from a Catholic background and a Lutheran background, yeah. I noticed the Presbyterians. I've always thought of that practice in the Catholic Church as, you know, the thing that people, the thing that they did so that people could take take Sunday and go to the beach. (laughs) Yeah, right, something like that, right. 
But uh, I'm being facetious, but the, practically speaking, I've known plenty of Catholics that did use it that way. But, uh, but it's worth thinking about, you know, because we live in an area where there are a lot of Seventh-day Adventists. I mean, the headquarters for the Pacific Northwest is right over there in Battleground for the Seventh-day Adventists. So what are the Seventh-day Adventists known for? Well, they're known for worshiping on Saturday, among other things. So they've rejected this, this practice of worshiping on Lord's Day in favor of worshiping on Saturday, the Sabbath, as it was set apart in the Old Testament. Yeah, Brittany. When God finished creating Earth after six days, and he created Adam and Eve, wasn't his day, God's day of rest the first day for Adam and Eve? Which is well, that's day. an interesting observation. Yeah, I think that, that you can make that argument. Yeah. Now, the argument that the fathers made, and one of the things, too, they do, they do here is they do note that, um, you know, in different scriptures in the New Testament, that, uh, that Sunday is referred to as the Lord's Day. So if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, now, concerning the collection for the saints, as they have given orders to the churches in Galatia, even uh, so do you. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, and there are uh, at that there be no gatherings when I come. So he's saying, you know, you're going to be meeting on this day anyway, so take an offering. And then Acts 20, verse 7, and upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. So breaking bread is what? Communion. Communion right? So Paul preached unto them, uh, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued to speech until midnight. So if you ever complain about me preaching long, just remember that. But so this, is a, this was a, a, a practice that uh, goes all the way back to the New Testament of, of worshiping on the Lord's Day. Now, why is it called the Lord's Day, and why do we worship on that day? Because there is a logic to it. Brittany brought up a good, good thought, but it's not the one that the fathers used. Yep. Resurrection. resurrection Day. So the Resurrection Day uh, would be the day that would be considered the Lord's Day, and that's when they would go to the graveyards sometimes, you know, and worship and so forth. So this is a practice that goes all the way back to the beginning. But what's, what's I think, uh, troubling to some is there's no, like, proof text. There's no, like, oh, we can say... Do it on this day now. It's just, this is what they did, and they saw that as obvious. Now, sometimes it's referred to as the eighth day. Are you familiar with that, you, that uh, way of putting it? The eighth day of the week is the, the day of the new creation. So one of the things that the, the practice was intended to point to is that the church is oriented toward the new creation. Uh, the Traditional Sabbath, or the practice of, of Sabbath observance on Saturdays, is focused on what? The first creation. So first creation, second creation. So we are the people of the new world, is one of the things that's being um, stated when we talk about the eighth day. It's a new beginning. It's a new, new world that's been instituted and inaugurated, and we're part of that. Seventh days... Sabbatarians have it wrong. That's a rhetorical question, I guess. And to Brittany's comment, like if you were to follow the day of creation, if you could actually follow it, was it, you know, was it on a Sunday or Saturday, the, the seventh day type of thing? So the, the theologians I've read on this, including Calvin, by the way, Calvin would not be considered in today's uh, standards a strict Sabbatarian. 
Um, he was principally a Sabbatarian. He did honor the Lord's Day. But he even uses words that now, if you look at it, the Institutes and then his commentary on Exodus chapter 20, it might be a different Calvin. So you have to be careful. But his view was every seventh day, that's what was important. So a seven-day time of worship where you set apart a seventh day, and that's your day of worship. And for us... And Calvin acknowledged that for us it's the Lord's Day on Sunday, the first day of the weekend. For others, it's not. And so, um, I think it's important to remember that it's a, it's a day that you're separating. It's your sanctifying the day. And Calvin even uses the word abrogated. So, so the arguments that the Westminster's divines would use for the abrogation of the ceremonial law, Calvin would actually intimate at the very least that the Sabbath things that are attached ceremonially are gone. Well, there's enough, maybe the day. There's not enough uh, sort of, uh, I don't want to use this word, but I'm, I guess I have to, ambiguity, to give everybody kind of room to make an argument. But that's where Calvin uses that word. Yeah. So in terms of, you know, uh, how we go about it, uh, in terms of, sort of encouraging it, holding people accountable for it, those kinds of things. Um, I do think that, you know, there's the Ten Commandments, but, you know, some people can object to that based on, you know, the fact that we're not actually worshiping on Saturday. Uh, instead, we're worshiping on Monday. But I think that there's uh, the evidence that we have implicit in Scripture that this was the practice. So maybe... And I suspect this was the case, although I can't prove it. I suspect. No, I, I suppose I can't. Because uh, we, you know, we're told that Paul would go to the synagogues on the Sabbath day, and he would uh, teach. And then the following day, apparently, he was also, but with the Christians. So two days, at least for those, for those early... Uh, it's like the Catholic Church. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, would it, is this relevant, though? I mean, we're talking the early church was mostly made up of Jewish people. Then on Sabbath, they'd still be under that law. Like, even well, after that was, that was certainly the, I think, the, the way things proceeded for a long time, so long as the church was predominantly Jewish. Uh, it didn't take too long for that no longer to be the case, where you had God-fearers, you know, uh, you know, very early on in Acts, we see lots and lots of uh, Greek believers, some of whom are actually Jews who were kind of culturally Greek, but many of whom were actually Greeks. And those would be refer referred to as the God-fearers. Would that, would that have kept them out from underneath the uh, synagogue's eyes, though, by meeting on Sunday instead of well, it would have, uh, but also they had been uh, many times within uh, the synagogue, you'd have a kind of almost a court of the Gentiles on the outside. So the God-fearers would come, but because they weren't circumcised, they weren't fully incorporated into Israel, they were on the periphery, but they were hearing the law read, and they were hearing it exp exposited. So that was a very normal thing in many parts. It was sort of like, almost like a holding tank, you could say, for people who were, you know, provisional membership or something like that. 
Any other thoughts? Yeah, David. Uh, wasn't there, pardon my voice, wasn't there like some disputes um, dealing with, you know, the Jews mandating the Christians to uphold traditions and and wasn't there almost like a revulsion at some point to the Sabbath on the Saturday because it was so, quote, Jewish that they wanted to completely run I, think, I know what you're getting at. I think you have to read in a little bit to it uh, because, you know, when Paul talks about new moons and you know, yeah. Sabbath and stuff, stuff like that, uh, there is a, the Judaizers who are a particular party in the church. So this is, when we think about the Judaizers, we're not thinking about some completely alien group of people who have nothing to do with the church. They were uh, a group within the church who believed that, uh, that the laws were not abrogated, that circumcision had to be observed. Um, and of course, you get into the middle of Acts and that's where you see all that going on, that debate going on. But the Apostle Paul uh, was very concerned about um, losing the sight of the gospel, uh, losing sight of the gospel in the observance of ceremonial law. Because if Christ fulfills the ceremonial law, you know, so we're talking about a whole range of things, from, from circumcision to, to special um, obligations or certain obligations that Jews had to perform. But as you can see, this we're, we're into some pretty deep water here, and things can get hard to sort out. Yeah, because Jews to this day still uh, Saturday is their day. But when you get in a conversation with a Messianic Jew, yeah, he, he tends to defend Saturday. <laughs> yeah, you know, so you're like, you know, you try to bring him the scripture, and then I've gotten into some of the Greek with some of these guys, and um, and if you but a lot of those Messianic Jews would still say, I'm. I'm I'm, well, but they would say I'm, I'm still Jew. You know, in other words, my becoming a Christian didn't mean I stopped being Jewish. So you have kind of an argument that's made that the way that the Judaizers practice their Christian faith is the way Jews today should do it. What about the Gentiles? I wonder in their minds, uh, like us, if it's okay to worship on Sunday. I mean, I'd like to talk to a Messianic Jew and see yeah. what that is. Well, I've known some. I've had some friends who are, you know, part of that world. And um, they try to maintain a, a positive relationship <laughs> with Gentile Christians. Um, it's, a, it's a small group, but it's a growing one. You know, I mean, there are lots of Messianic Jews in Israel now, for example. Of course, they're looked at it very askance by, you know, communities that they find themselves in. But that's the same thing in the first century. <laughs> you know. uh, anyway, any other thoughts on the reasons for observing the Sabbath day as Christians on the first day? Yeah, Becky. What do people have to work yeah. the weekend or Sunday? Well, there, are, there is a provision for something along that line implied in the very next paragraph. So let's, uh, let's get to that. <clears throat> so this Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand do not observe uh, a holy rest 
or do not only observe a holy rest and a holy rest uh, all the day from their own works, <clears throat> words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but are also taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of worship and the duties of necessity and mercy. So traditionally within the church, those uh, occupations uh, like uh, medical uh, work, uh, police work, uh, were subsumed under that broader category of necessity and, and mercy. Uh, and when it comes to people who uh, maybe just find themselves with an employer that demands that they work on Sunday, uh, what we try to encourage them to do is to approach the employer and ask for uh, an exemption or say, I would like to have that day off to worship the Lord and then take it from there. Did you say something? Say, yep. This last three chapters that we're doing, it's, um, I got to meet some Russians in Vladivostok five years after the wall fell down. They didn't dress up for their church. They dressed up normal, so they didn't uh, draw attention. Oh, sure. They, oh, that would be yeah. they were still scared. Oh, so sure. They didn't on Sundays. They didn't draw attention. They didn't, they didn't think it was going to last, so they didn't want to go to jail. Yeah, and I think that that is an extraordinary circumstance in which you know certain extraordinary things have to be done. Sure. Other thoughts? I think um, you know clearly when when it comes to this matter of a day being set aside, <clears throat> it's been interesting over the course of my life to see kind of a trans transformation. Um, when I was a kid, you'd wake up in the morning on Sunday and you just knew it was Sunday. What? You just knew it was Sunday. Oh, yeah. Because it was quieter. Yeah. And, you know, just, there, was just a, there was kind of an atmosphere. Like that, it was like Thanksgiving. Yeah. It's like you just, everybody knew this is... This, you knew that, you know, it, it, there was no store open for milk. It's just the way it is. So you just planned ahead. <laughs> it's amazing how, you know, people actually survived. You know, they plan ahead. Uh, then kind of the enthusiasm for, you know, commercial activity on Sunday kind of went to about as, as far as you could take it. And now I'm seeing even secular people asking for a common day of rest again. I don't know if you've seen that, but I've, I've actually heard secular arguments for a Sabbath day, one day a week. I always thought that... Uh at least a sign, a general sign of a people's group that had formed some form, that had developed a revival of sorts. One of the key signs would be what you just said. Um, in general, a larger and larger amount of people would conclude that we're not doing anything that day. And I always thought that would be interesting to see that come back. And if it does, it's going to be an interesting sign for me to see. What yeah, I, I think the challenge now is that we have such a low view of the Sabbath and the clergy, generally speaking, that uh, it's hard to imagine that happening. Um, you know, in the past, obviously, there was a pretty strong commitment by the clergy. <laughs> uh, but now uh, it's sort of like, yeah, whatever, we'll accommodate anything. 
So I, I do think there has to be a commitment by, by the leaders of the church to promote that. But I, I guess the thing I'm intrigued by is this kind of nat. This gets back to that statement about what's natural. There's a kind of a, a sense that people have that it's not just enough to have a day off. Everybody needs the same day off. That's the thing that people are feeling a need for. Um, and like I said, it's not just coming from Christian groups. In fact, it's coming from uh, people who are just thinking about community health and the well-being of people and stuff like that. Now, that's not an, that's not an illegitimate uh, uh, thing to consider. Remember the justifications for the Sabbath in the Decalogue. You've got two accounts, the Deuteronomy 5 and the Exodus 20. And there are different rational justifications for the Sabbath. Do you remember what the two two are? Because you have one in one place and different in the other. Yeah. The one who rescued out of slavery yeah. in Egypt. Yeah. Where you didn't get a day off. Yeah. <laughs> Every day was work in Egypt. And then the other one is that the Lord rested on the Sabbath day, and you should too. So you're following the Lord's pattern. But the the other that we tend to lose sight of is that you once served a Lord that didn't give you rest. You worked, 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 and killed you. So that human side of it is also part. You know, Jesus says this. You know, the, you know, the, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Remember that statement. So there is a there is a sense in which this is not illegitimate an, an illegitimate concern. You know, it's a it's a legitimate concern that people need. <laughs> You know, to have a day set aside where they're not forced to work. Yep, they can live longer. Now, isn't but here's something I like to end on here because we're getting close to the end. Why is it that we feel a need to work seven days? Because I do think that sometimes people do have this almost kind of like compulsion to work. My mother was was a workaholic. Well, there's the workaholic, but what is it about us? Because I agree. Why is it hard for us to stop? Because sabbat. Stop. You know, it literally means stop. Maybe their parents didn't teach them to stop. Okay. I feel like it's an opportunity to get ahead. Yeah, okay. Yeah, maybe get ahead of your competition or make more money. Yeah, yeah. That's not the end all. Right. Yeah, and that's probably one of the things that it's intended to to teach is that man does not live by bread alone. Right. And the employer sometimes lures you with more money yeah. for working overtime, so you're tempted by that. Yeah, you go in and you say, I like the Sundays off, and they say, well, how about some overtime? Well, maybe I don't want <laughs> Yeah, David. Ultimately, it's not trusting God, it's only trusting yourself for yeah. everything you need, and the Israelites in the desert learn, oh no, we better plan ahead for that day of no manna, because God had quite a lesson for them to learn how much they needed him. It was interesting that Lord put some preservatives into the manna on that day. If they if they if they gathered more than they needed and saved it for a second day, every other day of the week it went bad and really stunk to high heaven. But the day that you had to collect for two, it was good. Christopher, Psalm one twenty seven talks about anxious toil. Mm. It's vain for you to rise up early and sit up late and eat bread of anxious toil. Yeah, for the Lord gives His beloved sleep. Yeah, that's, that's a great one. That's a great one. And I think there's something to be said, too, for um, timing. So we all know, if you've done anything, 
there are just times where you're just a whole lot more productive than other times. And there are days where you're like, I've been working all day and I haven't accomplished a single thing. So it's not like just because you're working, you're actually get being productive. And I think what we're, we're relying on is uh, God's favor to make us productive in those six days um, and not feeling like, you know, it's just us all the time. Yep, David. But that seventh day is a rest from your toils. You have something to do on that seventh day. Yeah. You have to sit on the beach all day long. Right. And I'm out of time here, but I would like to maybe return to this next week. But there's something to think about there in the sense that God is saying, um, set apart some time to just focus on me. Right. Not just as a private person, but as a church, as a community. Okay, well, we've come to the end of the time. This hopefully has been helpful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your blessings. We're grateful for this Sabbath day, and we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to worship you in spirit and in truth on it. In Christ's name, amen.